Praise the Lord. Amen. I think we were able to turn this way up because this is really loud. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Please don't worry about it. <laughs> no, it was like this before. Uh, no. We'll figure it out. We were trying to we were trying to adjust this uh, for the the going home ceremony, and uh, I think we were able to do that, but I don't remember how. <laughs> it was one of several processes. Anyway, uh, we'll get it. Amen. Good to be in the house of the Lord today. It is so good to be here. So good to be here with all of you. I want to thank Bob. Thank you so much for bringing those donuts. On the milk and the and the pineapple, we had a good time of fellowship down there. Uh, I don't know if there's anything left, but if there is, uh, feel free to finish it off after service. Amen. Awesome. I love I love times of fellowship. Praise God. Uh, also, by way of reminder, uh, please remember that tomorrow uh, is the wake for uh, Sandy Becker. That is going to be at Hoff Funeral Home in Goodview, Minnesota, from 5 to 7 p.m. Amen. Uh, the church is invited, and I would, I would encourage you, if you can make it, please do. Uh, go and support our sister and her family in this time of need. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We're expecting awesome things of an awesome God this evening and forevermore. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You're a wondrous, glorious King. We heap glory and honor unto You, Thou Most High. Thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've given us this evening to enter into the very presence, the very throne room of God, to receive of You all that You have for us this evening. Good things. The best things. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Our hope, our faith, our trust, and our confidence is in You this evening. And You alone... Hallelujah, Jesus. We will receive of You all that You have for us. We will give ourselves wholly and completely unto Your instruction this evening. Hallelujah, Jesus. We trust You. We love You. We worship and we praise You. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that You would assume control of this service. This is Your service. And we are Your people. This is Your church. Hallelujah, Jesus. Purchased by Your holy, precious blood. Have Your perfect will and way in this place this evening. In all of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. We do give glory and honor unto You. And I delight myself in You this evening. My Savior, my Creator, my Redeemer, the Lover of my soul. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are an awesome God. And we are so blessed today. Amen, amen. We are a blessed people. So very blessed to have the Lord to our God. Hallelujah. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Our scripture text will be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We've been hitting Colossians 2 and 9 a lot. But there are eight verses before that. Let's take a look at them this evening. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." It doesn't say in, in whom are hid some of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge or most of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It does say all. Verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, 
rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. Our topic for this evening uh, came actually uh, from our last night's prayer meeting. We, uh, I wouldn't call it a discussion per se, uh, but there were some prayer requests and, and uh, maybe a little bit of discussion on some different things that we're facing in our society today. Uh, abortion was brought up. Uh, division, racial division particularly, was brought up. Uh, and some other thing. I mean, if, if we wanted to take the time to, to point out some things that are wrong in our society today, we wouldn't have to think too hard to come up with a topic. And that's wrong with our society today. But why? Why do people believe these weird things? We don't believe that those are right. But there are people, very intelligent people, who believe that it's okay to abort a an unborn baby. There are people very intelligent, more intelligent than I am, that believe with all of their heart that it's okay for a man to marry a man. Why is that? And why do we believe that it's not okay? I'm going to quote a, uh, an article I found online, uh, Teresa.org. It's an article called The Power of Ideas, a man by the name of Edward Andrews. We're going to be talking about the power of an idea this evening. He starts off by saying this, For me, it started with Isaiah Berlin. Granted, Alexander Herzen, Alexis de Tocqueville, Friedrich Hayek, and others, Tolstoy, Mill, Camus, Orwell, to name a few, all contributed to varying degrees. But it was definitely Berlin who first captivated me with the at once powerful, transformative, compelling, and sometimes destructive power of ideas. In his seminal essay, 1958, called Two Concepts of Liberty, Berlin reminded us of the German poet Heinrich Heine's 1834 warning that the power of ideas is not to be underestimated. And he quotes Mr. Heinz here. Philosophical concepts... Nurtured in the stillness of a professor's study could destroy a civilization. Unquote. Hein was pr principally alluding to the 40 years of bloodshed and murder in the name of progress that had followed France's 1789 revolution. But it is a warning the 21st century could do well to heed. Ideas are everywhere. They underpin social, economic, and political acts. They provide inspiration for art, literature, and films, which for future generations, becomes a lens through which they can observe their ancestors, discovering what they thought, felt, liked, disliked, how they lived. In the context of a human condition characterized by heterogeneity, the proliferation of ideas can contribute towards celebrating those individual differences while at the same time offering means of cooperation. Shared traditions, cultures, and nationalities all arise from shared ideas. And yet ideas have also been the direct cause of horrible human crimes for millennia. Or rather, one idea in particular, I would pause to say that I probably disagree with him on this point, but I'll continue to quote. Or rather, one idea in particular, the notion that all answers to the central questions of human life, individual, spiritual, political, or cultural, can be reduced to one single answer, an irrefutable and universal standard, it is this very idea which underpins the extreme ideology of the Islamic State that pretends to know what is right for every single individual and which presently offers such a visible and direct challenge to the Western liberal paradigm. Unquote. I would state that I think there is one central answer to all of life's problems. And that answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. But to say that there is one person, to say that there is one individual here on earth that could sum that up, I would agree with him there. There is not. It's, uh, 
the idea that the, the, the Western liberal paradigm he speaks of, the, the, the government structure that we have, is one that seeks to disperse power amongst a group of individuals. Rather than in ancient times, all power and authority was manifest in a single individual. That's how it was then. Uh, and it could be really good or it could be really bad. In today's modern constitutionally federated democracy, no, constitutionally federated republic, I apologize. This is, for those of you that don't know, this was never meant to be a democracy. We were trying to avoid that at all costs. But in any case, uh, we seek to disperse that. Kind of, it's kind of like uh, investing versus trading. Uh, it, if you're investing, you're just you need, you're putting a set of money amount each month into a mutual fund or uh, uh, using a money manager, and that's that's an awesome idea. I think we should all do that. But the idea is don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify. Uh, reduce risk. That's the idea there. It's kind of like our, the way our government is set up. In ancient times, it was all or nothing. It was a really good king or a really wicked king or a really poor king, whatever it was. Uh, that's kind of like, like what Warren Buffett would do. You've all heard of Warren Buffett. <clears throat> Warren Buffett says, I put all my eggs in one basket, but I watch that basket real carefully. Now, Warren Buffett is a little bit more knowledgeable on these things than most people are. So he, he can probably do that. If you're knowledgeable with that stuff, fantastic. If not, I highly recommend putting your money away into a mutual fund every month. Use a money manager. Amen. That's, that's the right thing to do. But our government is kind of like that. It, it disperses everything. Freedom for all. All ideas are accepted. All ideas are welcome. At least that was the idea. Didn't mean to end up like that, but that's kind of cool. <clears throat> okay, so ideas matter. Ideas are, they're not just important. They're absolutely paramount. What ideas we hold to be true, what ideas we hold to be false, what people think, what they believe about reality, about how we know what we know, about how we should live our lives, are all determined by what we believe to be true. Our ideas. Ideas can captivate. Ideas can transform whole societies. When it comes to these areas, these areas of philosophy, our Scripture text told us, warned us, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. There are philosophies that are accurate and correct, particularly scriptural, biblical philosophies. What Jesus warns us of is to not be captivated by the ideas of the world, worldly ideas, worldly philosophies. It deals with three areas primarily, one or more of them, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Okay, Metaphysics is our ideas about reality. And it deals with some pretty fundamental questions. Is reality knowable? Can we know anything about reality? How do we know when we know something? What does it mean to know? Can you define that? I know that gas prices are going to... What do you mean by that? When you say you know that, what does that mean exactly? Philosophers try to deal with questions like that Metaphysical questions. The second area is epistemology. How do we know what we know? How are we sure when we know something? Ethics is how we should live our lives. What makes something right? What makes something wrong? Why ought we do some things? Why ought we not do other things? What provides the moral impetus? What do you mean by morals? What does that mean? What, is, what does right mean? What does wrong mean? Questions like that. 
you ever want to sound smart to an average person, just end everything with a question. Well, I'm going to go to the movies tomorrow. What does that mean specifically? What do you mean by movies? Ooh, you sound really smart. In a few areas, that actually is smart, but mostly it's not. (laughs) One idea in particular that has caused a multitude of problems for us in the Western world is the philosophy, the idea, the uh, worldview of secular humanism. When we're talking about abortion, when we're talking about homosexuality, when we're talking about lawlessness or divorce rates or uh, people sleeping together outside of marriage, it sounds almost old-fashioned and ridiculous to even bring that up today, but there was a time where that was a big deal. There was a time where you could actually be arrested for that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a police officer coming to your house today? Maybe not your house. (laughs) But the average couple's house, they're not married, they're living together, they got kids. Need to arrest you. You broke the law. It's just it's just not done today. It's normal. Everybody does it, as the saying goes. Secular humanism, or if you prefer, methodological naturalism, materialism, uh, etc., etc. The idea that only what we can see, taste, touch, feel, hear, those things are real. Nothing else is real. There is no metaphysical or supernatural aspect to reality. And that will become a big deal here momentarily. The apologetic used to defend this worldview is called evolution. Maybe some of you have heard of that. That is the scientific apologetic used to prove that secular humanism is the correct worldview. This was pushed to the forefront primarily, and for purposes of time, I'm going to uh, abbreviate a lot of this, and those of you that know something about this topic are going to say, yeah, that's kind of oversimplifying. Yeah, it, it is. But for our purposes today, there are two people that I want to discuss that, are, that are, uh, were very instrumental in propelling this forward in Western culture. The first is a man by the name of Charles Lyell. Mr. Lyell was a Scottish geologist who introduced the idea of uniformitarianism. Now, before this, the idea was that of catastrophism, in which we believed, according to Scripture, that there was a biblical flood. It was a global flood, not a local one. It covered the whole earth. And because of this universal flood, this global flood, we see all kinds of geological formations and structures today caused by that flood. It happened quickly. If you uh, are aware of Mount St. Helens, that completely rewrote the landscape. It created caverns. It created uh, miniature Grand Canyons in that area in a matter of days and weeks. If we didn't know what happened and a geologist today went there, they'd probably say that happened over... Hundreds of thousands or millions or even billions of years. But it didn't. We know what happened. It happened in a matter of weeks. And catastrophism is the idea that the Grand Canyon and other formations like this were carved out very quickly. Mountain ranges rising. The seafloor is being pushed down. Water running off. A lot of water running off all at once. Caused this. So that was the general idea. Geologists held up until this point. Uniformitarianism says that the present is the key to the past. In other words, the processes that we see going on today happened at the same rate all the way back in time. And if you believe that idea, 
Then we arrive at millions of years for the age of the earth. He presented this idea in his book, Principles of Geology. Before that book came out, most scientists subscribed to the idea of catastrophism. Lyle saw himself, and I quote him specifically, as the spiritual savior of geology, freeing the science from the old dispensation of Moses. That's how Mr. Lyle saw himself. So we see Mr. Lyle didn't have a very good... He considered himself a religious man. But his ideas of Scripture were a little bit... not right. And that becomes important. The other man we'll talk about briefly. You probably know this one a little bit more. Uh, Mr. Charles Darwin. An English naturalist, geologist, biologist, popularized the idea of evolutionary biology. The idea that all life arose ultimately from a single living organism, which arose ultimately from inanimate material. He would never deal with that aspect himself. Few people do today. But, that's the idea. He presented his ideas uh, after a culmination of papers and, and reports in his 1859 book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Very descriptive title. Interestingly, this was a rather old idea, but Mr. Darwin popularized it due to the respectable scientific slant he was able to place on it. This was not a new idea. This went all the way back to the ancient Greeks. This idea of humanism and evolution. Uh, in one form or another. He was able to popularize it, though, by putting a scientific spin on it, which gave it respectability. Originally, he attended Cambridge University to become an Anglican clergyman. In this period of life, he did not doubt the strict and literal truth of every word in the Bible. He believed the Bible cover to cover, word for word, that it was true. On board the HMS Beagle, Darwin would quote the Bible as an authority on morality. And whenever he saw any evidences in nature, he would point to that as an evidence of creation. But by his return, Darwin was critical of the Bible as history and wondered why all religions should not be equally valid. He was introduced to Mr. Lyle's book, Principles of Geology, on board the, the HMS Beagle. And he had read it during the voyage, and he became intrigued by it. This idea started formulating in his mind. He began to question the account of Scripture based on the scientific evidences that, when interpreted by Lyle, contradicted the historical creation account presented to us in Scripture. Five years after his book on the origin of species was published, he was awarded Britain's highest scientific honor. And by 1870, just 11 years later, most scientists believed that evolution had indeed occurred. It was an idea that had taken off like wildfire. Every belief system leads us to inevitable conclusions about the nature of reality, how we know what we know how we ought to live our lives. Every one of them leads to inevitable, uh, irresistible, irrefutable conclusions. Let's see where this belief system inevitably leads. Now, most people aren't going to do the, the mental homework to do this, to run it to ground, to go all the way down the road. Because they don't want to. They don't need to. They have no desire to know about that. All I need to know is, can I do what I want to do? If the answer is yes, then this must be true. The Bible teaches us plainly that there's no problem with Scripture, there's no contradictions, there's no real problem in believing truth. The problem is sin. That's where the problem comes in. I want to live the way I want to live. I do not want to submit myself to a righteous God. And so I'm going to come up with any and every reason not to. 
If I can put a scientific spin on it, all the better. A philosophical slant on it, awesome. That's what it really boils down to. But let's run this to ground. Let's go all the way down this road and see where it leads up. Philosophers, secular philosophers have done this. If you read their writings on this, they are depressing, to say the least. Because in their minds, they subscribe to this. They believe this is true. But they've actually done the work to go all the way down this road and see where it ends up. And they end up despondent. Metaphysics. They believe there are no supernatural events or entities at all. Only material, natural objects are thought to exist. Reality is self-creating, self-guiding, and self-evolving. Leading to everything getting bigger, better, stronger, faster. Everything is gradually improving. Eventually, we will end up in a state of perfection. Evolved into some energy being. If you, if you read Star Trek or, or look at any of those things, that's the utopian future that we have to look forward to. There is no intelligent design built into existence and no direction to evolution. And so no purpose to life can be assumed. No more value can be placed on a human life as it can a, a fern or a bacteria. The epistemology. There are no supernatural elements to existence and no non-material elements either. This means... Of course, that information and ideas would have no place in this universe. Have you ever stubbed your toe on an idea? Have you ever dropped a, a number on your foot? Not a physical number, but the state of two-ness, for example. How much does that weigh? It has no physical aspect to it. Ideas, information, laws, laws of logic. None of these would have a place in our universe. And so if there are no laws, then of course we, we should have chaos. If this evolved from a Big Bang, and that's an oversimplification, it's a rapid expanse of space-time, same thing. It's the same thing. What do you get out of an explosion? We all know what we get out of an explosion. Yeah, a mess. That's right. And that's what we should have, is chaos. But that's not what we observe in this universe. We observe laws. We observe laws that continue to move forward. They were true a thousand years ago. They're true today. They're true on earth, just, just like they are on the moon. Just like they are in the Andromeda galaxy. They've always been true. As far as we can tell, they're always going to be true. But that kind of idea would have no place in a secular humanist's worldview. Okay? Because we sprang into existence by a cosmic accident, why can we trust in the overall stability and reliability of our observations of it? Think about that for a moment. How can we trust that? How do I know that gravity is going to behave the same tomorrow as it is today? What basis am I making that assumption on? Well, it's always operated this way as far, as, as far back as we can go. Okay, well that's fine. If I, flip a if, a, if I flip a coin and a hundred times it comes up heads, does that mean it's automatically going to come up heads again? Statistically speaking, i got a really good shot of tails right now. Right? I don't know it's going to do that tomorrow. I don't know it's going to operate the same way here as it does a billion years ago. And I'm... I'm going to be making a point with all of this. How can I trust my own thought processes? My brain is simply molecules in motion. It was organized randomly. There's no design up here. Right? 
Well, there's massive design up there. We see incredible design up there. But there is no design in this worldview. It's a random process. And if that's true, how can I trust it? How can I trust it to be reliable? How can I trust it to think properly? It's a, it's a bag of chemicals up there. How do I know that bag of chemicals isn't going to get mixed up? How can I trust my memories? How can I prove conclusively that my memories are actually recollections of events that actually happened? Objective, external events that happened in this reality. How do I know that for sure? Think about that for a moment. That's where the whole idea of the matrix came from. That one question right there. Maybe we're stuck in a computer program. Maybe we're not really here at all. Maybe we're plugged into a vat of uh, chemical soup somewhere and they're keeping us alive intravenously and our brains are plugged into a computer and this is what we're experiencing. Disprove that. Good luck. It's frustratingly hard to disprove that. So how do I know that what I remember of my childhood is actual, was an actual event? That could have been programmed in there 15 minutes ago by some mad scientist. How do we know that's not true? We'll answer that. Ethics. Where does morality come from? Everyone in the world, the most seemingly wicked individual, believes in a right and a wrong. We would definitely disagree on what is right and wrong. But they believe in the idea. They believe the concept is real. There are things that are right. There are things that are wrong. There is a morality. There is an ethic that we ought to live by. Even if it's might makes right. How do we determine what's right and wrong? Why do we need to determine that at all? Well, in the secular humanist worldview, again, what provides the impetus? Why ought I do certain things? Why ought I not do other things? What provides the impetus, the moral impetus, to enforce that? Nothing. There is no enforceable morality in a secular worldview. Might makes right. Some people will try to be egalitarian and, and, and really... Uh, evolved and say, well, whatever brings the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest amount of people, or whatever brings the greatest amount of benefit to the greatest amount of people. Well, my question then is, why should I care about them? I think it's a valid question. Why should I care if the greatest amount of people get benefited? What about me? And what do you have to say against that? Well, that's not right. Why not? Who says? Nobody has the authority to enforce that except the individual. If I'm strong enough, if I'm powerful enough, I can enforce my own morality. And isn't that the basis of evolution? Natural selection. Red in tooth and claw. That's evolution. So where does morality come from? Why do people believe in this in the first place? What evolutionary purpose would that serve? Why should I place such a premium on human life anyway? I'm just a bag of chemicals in a meat sack. I have no purpose. I'm an accident. I shouldn't even be here. We're born into a purposeless and meaningless reality. We live out our purposeless and meaningless lives, and then we die. And it doesn't matter. That's the conclusion of this worldview, folks. That's where this leads to. Nobody is worth anything. 
It doesn't matter what you do or don't do with your life because you're going to die soon and be forgotten. And everybody you would have affected anyway, they're going to be gone soon. So it's not going to matter. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just... Oh, that gets me up in the morning. Nobody thinks about that. This worldview says that there is no holy and righteous God. That's enough for me. Yeah, it does say that, but it says a few more things too. I found a poem a little while ago. Maybe some of you have read this. It's called uh, Ozymandias by Percy B. Shelley. I think that's pronounced correctly. If not, I apologize. It goes like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survives stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretched far away. That's exactly what our lives amount to if secular humanism is true. This great king Ozymandias, far as we can tell, was a mighty king back in the day. Had a vast empire, many great works that he built. But nobody remembers. And the only thing left to show anything that he ever existed is this broken down parcel statue. With the arrogant writing, look on my works in despair. That's where we end up, folks, if that worldview is true. It's small wonder that when people take the time to trace that all the way down, ride that road all the way to the end, and they come up with this, that they end up in despair. Is it any wonder that we believe the way we do? Is it any wonder that the problems we face as a society, depression, despondency, suicides, drug addiction, alcoholism, why not? Why wouldn't you? If you subscribe to this belief system, I'd be trying to numb the pain too. Good Lord, have mercy. There is just nothing to look forward to. Nothing at all. Get what I can while I'm here. Enjoy life while I can because it's going to be over soon enough. Yeah, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow I die. That's exactly it. If I accomplish great things in my lifetime, so what? If I help people and improve their lives, so what? I'm going to be gone and they're going to be gone. Whether I help them or not, we all end up in the same place. Have I hurt people? Take advantage of people? So what? They're all going to be gone and I'm going to be gone. And there's no judgment. I just get recycled. So who cares? Our society today... Our morals are very subjective and they're based on what? What are our morals based on? Obviously not Scripture. Pleasure. The individual. Yeah. What's good for me? We were talking about abortion. I'll go over some statistics later on, but why do people want abortion to be legal so desperately? Why is this such a hot topic? Especially since this dumb leak came out. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Women want the same 
enjoyment. They want the same opportunity to enjoy these uh, activities as men with the same consequences as men. Because men don't get the consequences. They have their fun and they're on their merry way. It's the woman that gets pregnant. It's the woman that has to deal with that for the rest of her life. And I'll be the first to stand up and say, that's not right. But none of this is right. Here's an idea. How about we abstain from that until we get married? How about we try it that way? All of this goes away. All the problems go away. Now the husband and wife are together. The child is raised in a loving home. Both parents. What an awesome concept. But that's not how it is. Because one of a thousand and one issues is nobody wants to commit. That's a four-letter word in today's society. Committing myself for the rest of my life to someone? Uh, I don't know if I'm that kind of guy. I don't know if I, I could just be a one-girl kind of guy. And more and more women are saying the same thing. It just, it freaks me out. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from a belief system. Ultimately, they believe something about reality that we don't. That's where that comes from. It comes from a belief system. They believe something fundamentally different. And that's where it ends up. That's where it leads. Our laws are very subjective. Again, what are our laws based on? What is jurisprudence in this country based on? It used to be based on Scripture. Quite literally. Not anymore. Abortion is legal in the United States. Does that make it moral? Is there a difference? Is there a difference between legality and morality? There shouldn't be. If it's lawful, it should be moral. But it's not. There is a difference. Why is there a difference? Divorce, immorality, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism. Coming soon, pedophilia will all be or is legal and normalized. Why is that? Under what or whose authority has that been normalized? Why do people think it's right now? Fifty years ago, it was against the law to marry another man. For me. You girls could. I couldn't. That was against the law. But now it's perfectly acceptable in a lot of states. Why is that? What changed? Were we wrong back then and right now? Are we correcting an error? Why the change? Is our government here for our benefit? Or are we here for its benefit? Do you know what's going to determine the answer to that? Our ideas on government. How should we structure it? How should we order it? What is the idea of government? What purpose, what role does it serve? When your life has no meaning, you better believe you're going to contemplate suicide. You better believe you're going to be depressed. People that are depressed to the point of suicide Folks, they don't need just a pep talk. They don't need just a, a checkup from the neck up. Just need to realize that attitude determines altitude. There you go. Just get a better attitude. Stiff upper lip. 
That works for some people. But when, you, when your fundamental belief system is nihilism, that's not going to cut it. They need a different belief system. They need a revelation of truth. Despite living in arguably the most technologically, medically advanced country in the world, definitely one of them, our overall health is at an all-time low. We're less healthy now than we were 50 years ago, overall. Why is that? Our, our lifespans are increased. But to some extent, that's thanks to the ventilator. I'm not being facetious with that or, or, or cute or funny. <laughs> you look at the average person walking down the street, and they're 20 to 50 pounds overweight. Why is that? Hospitals are sometimes waiting room only. Most all hospitals are short-staffed. Their staffs are consistently overworked. Why is that? Well, we're just a bag of chemicals. So we just add the right chemicals to the mix and things get better. That's the pharmaceutical industry. I'm not saying there's not benefit there. There is benefit there. But I'll tell you what benefits more. And I'm going to just drop it on out there and move on. A better diet and exercise will cover a multitude of sins, folks. There you go. Moving on. We're encouraged to heed those philosophies that are after Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This particular worldview stands in stark contrast to the worldview presented, us, presented to us in Scripture by Jesus Christ. Secular humanism is diametrically opposed to biblical Christianity in almost every conceivable way. What are the logical conclusions of biblical Christianity? Well, I think that's a fair question. I think that's a fair statement, too. We're running these other ones down. Let's run this one down. What's the metaphysics of biblical Christianity? Both the natural and the supernatural exist in our reality, and both are integral. Each has its place. Reality sprang into existence at the word of its Creator, the Lord God. It's carefully designed by Him, with purpose built into it. What purpose? To give glory to its Creator. To create a place where we could inhabit and where we could serve and worship Him. We see that reality reflects its Creator's characteristics. His power. His omnipotence. His size. His, his great intellect. We see those displayed in all of creation. All of creation is maintained and upheld by the word of His power. There are natural laws that govern God's creation, all written by God Himself. Information is present in God's creation and has its origin in the mind of God. Just one example is the DNA molecule. I've used that several times before. The information packed into one DNA molecule, if printed out in books, would fill the Grand Canyon several times. There's a lot of information in one DNA molecule. Where did that information come from? It came from God. It came from His mind. That's where all information comes from. If I sit down and write a book, Brother Parker, Mr. Parker, he's an author. He's wrote several books. Did you use monkeys? Did you use... Just, just throw a bunch of stuff at a typewriter until the right thing came out? Just a random program. Just throw a grenade at it. And then these books came out. 
No, information always comes from a mind. If someone authors a book, it came from their mind. Information is present in God's creation, and we have perfect justification for its existence within our worldview. Reality started perfect. Now, I missed this part, but in secular humanism, everything is getting bigger, better, faster, stronger. I didn't miss that. We're going on to utopia. In our reality, though, we see the exact opposite. We see it historically. We even see it today. We certainly see it scripturally. Reality started perfect. Then because of sin, death, degradation, and decay entered creation. And now we see things winding down. Getting worse. Weaker. Slower. Worse off than they were before. Copies of copies of copies of copies. Doesn't lead to improvements. If I photocopy a piece of paper 20 times and then fax it a few times and then Xerox it and then uh, take a picture of it and give it to you, what do you think it's going to look like? Absolutely unreadable. That's what we are. Fortunately, we're quite a bit more robust than, than those systems are. But the same process is happening to the human race. We started perfect with Adam and Eve. And every time a new generation comes, copying errors, mutations enter in because of sin. What's our epistemology? How we know what we know. Natural laws, laws of logic, information, numbers, etc. They all have their place in the biblical Christian's worldview. We can trust the overall reliability of our senses. We believe that this is an external, objective reality. It's not in my mind. It's not a computer program. Scripture teaches us that it is an, it's a reality all unto its own. If I, and what I mean by that is, if I weren't here observing it, it would still be here. It would still exist. If none of us were here to observe it, it would still be here. It would still exist. It's external. It's objective. It's not dependent on my mind or my thought. We can trust the overall reliability of our senses to grow and to learn and to discover about God's creation, about the truths in God's Word, because that's His will for us. He has stated specifically that He wants us to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Word of God. He wants us to study to show ourselves approved. Well, what difference would that make if we can't remember? If we can't learn. He instructs us to hide the Word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. To memorize Scripture. How is that going to happen without a memory? Without a reliable memory? Now, we don't have perfect memories. As we get older, they get less perfect. However, they are generally reliable. We're going to need to be able to make consistent, observable uh, observations about reality and come to conclusions. That means that it's going to have to stay consistent for us to discover those laws. They have to stay consistent. Things have to operate the same as they did before. Not just flip a switch and now gravity works the opposite way. We're going to change the gravitational constant. We're going to change these constants. We're going to change the weight of the proton. You know, all of this stuff. No. What's our view on ethics? Where do we get the idea of morality from? Well, we've got an easy answer for that, don't we? The secular humanist... Uh, 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 um, just ask him that question. It's fun. It's fun. I know I shouldn't say that. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I need to repent. Where do we get the idea of morality from? From Scripture. From God's character. Scripture details right and wrong for us based on God's character. God's very character becomes our definition of right 
Anything contrary to that becomes our definition of wrong. Why does he get to be that? Because it's his creation. He made it. He pays the bills. It's his house. Folks, this is his house. All of it is his. So he gets to make the rules. He gets to decide what's right and wrong. Typically, someone would say, if you don't like the rules of the house, find somewhere else to live. But you're not going to be able to do that with God because there's no other house to live in. This is the only universe we're aware of. I know there's this multiverse theory and all of that stuff, but that is a bunch of hoo-hoo. That is the scientific as that microphone right there. The microphone is more scientific. It actually works. So God's character is the definition of right and wrong. Everything contrary, that's, that's evil. That's wrong. God is the ultimate and only inherent authority in all of reality, and so we cannot escape our obligation to obey Him. That provides our ought to. That provides the moral impetus for obedience. Because He has all power. He has all authority. Nobody escapes that. Nobody crawls out from underneath that. They can exercise their free moral agency and tell God no. Absolutely. And they can live however they want to live. But nobody escapes His authority. Because at some point, they're going to stand before that holy and righteous God and give an account. For the lives that they lived. They don't escape God's authority. So that's why we ought to obey. That's why we ought to submit. Because at the end of the day, folks, you don't have a choice. You don't really have a choice. You do have a choice and that you can live however you want. But you don't have a choice whether or not you're going to fall under God's authority. At some point, you are always going to fall under God's authority. At some point, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that He is Lord. Okay, why should we place a premium on human life? Because we're created in God's image. This is another easy question for a biblical Christian to answer. We're created in His image. He places that value on us. Does he get to determine value too? <laughs> yeah. Yes, he does. Call it fiat money if you will. That's our money, by the way. Federal Reserve note, debt note. It's worth a dollar because the U.S. government says it's worth a dollar. And you're legally bound to accept it as a dollar. It has no inherent worth otherwise. That's called fiat money. You can call it fiat if you will, but it's also uh, it's also inherent because we are created in God's image. We are every one of us of inestimable value. Every one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived up to the present. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. You're a human being created in God's image. And He loves you. And He wants, he wants to have a relationship with you. You can be the ugliest person walking on God's green earth. You can have the worst singing voice. You can smell. It doesn't matter. God loves you. He died on a cross for you. How awesome is that? And He created you with love and with purpose. He created you for a reason. Our lives have purpose. Our lives have meaning. What we do matters. It matters. It matters for all of eternity. The basis of our laws ought to come from Scripture, which is the basis of right and wrong. 
morality should equate to legality. They should be the same. Matthew seven fifteen through 20 says this, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. That applies to philosophies as well, worldviews. You cannot get good conclusions out of a bad philosophy. You can't. If you understand anything about the laws of logic, it doesn't work. You have to start with good premises to come to a good conclusion. You can, you can get a good conclusion out of bad premises, but the argument is, is faulty. It's not a valid argument. What are the fruits of secular humanism? run through quick and then we'll close. The propagation and scientific justification of slavery. The Holocaust caused almost directly by someone's belief in evolution. According to the World Health Organization, there are an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions every year in the world. 40 to 50 million every year in the world today. That corresponds to approximately 125,000 abortions every day. In the U.S., there are approximately 3,000 abortions a day. That means that excluding miscarriages, 22% of all pregnancies in the United States end in an abortion. Why is that? Well, we've already talked about it. Life is meaningless. Humans are simply bags of chemicals and babies are lumps of fetal tissue. We just redefine the terms until it suits our needs. Women want to enjoy the same activities as men do with the same consequences that men have. To sum it up, secular humanism will end up producing fruit based on what is inherent in man. Galatians 5, 19-21 says, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What are the fruits of biblical Christianity? And I'm running really fast. The end of slavery, the end of the Holocaust, the viewing of women as being equal to a man legally, the vehement resistance of the slaughtering of untold millions of babies, love and compassion for all men and women regardless of the color of their skin, culture, belief system, or economic status. Now, None of us here are so ignorant or so naive as to believe that this sums up all of Christianity and the other sums up all of secular humanism. There are examples, there are fringe elements on both sides. Okay, we understand that. It's not 100% on both sides. But by and large, the overall consensus is that biblical Christianity will end up, in fact, in every time, if you do it biblically, it will end up producing fruit based on the character of God. Verses 22 through 24 of Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Amen. Let's all stand.